Welcome back, Immigrant Nation. Another week and one special episode. It's our 100th episode of An Immigrant's Life. And for this special episode, I decided that I would record a video, an actual video, not the usual video that I do, this only audio. So if you're listening to Spotify or Apple or however you listen to a podcast, if you want to watch the video while you're doing something, I don't know, working or whatever else you do, you can go on ahead and go to YouTube and type in An Immigrant's Life. You will see me there. And while you're there, subscribe. Let me get back to the episode. And I want to take my time to celebrate this episode because I'm not really a sentimental person. I don't really celebrate the achievements that I do, but I cannot deny the fact that this podcast and all the achievement that it has allowed me to achieve, it makes me feel proud. Um, from the generosity of the listeners sending me boxes of chocolates, um, candles, uh, pair of shoes, artwork, I'm really grateful for that. Uh, I'm also grateful that I was allowed to be a guest on Chin Radio, Ottawa, this uh, past July. That's probably one of the greatest achievements of my life. I'm pretty proud of that. But what really makes me proud is the friendship that this podcast has allowed me to have, uh, making friends from uh are all around Canada, US, Europe, and even Australia. I am grateful for that those friendships. And I'm really grateful to know that anywhere in the world that I could go, I have people there, you know? And I'm happy for that. And yeah, so thank you so much. Also, of course, I'm not going to forget. Thank you, my avid listener. I really do appreciate you. If it wasn't for you, this podcast would not exist. And I can guarantee that. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much. So enough of the sentimentality. Let's go straight talk about the episode. Like I said, this is a very special episode, not only because um, it's our 100th episode, but also because we have a very special guest. For a hundred episode, I invited a guest that embodies the spirit of this podcast. A very driven individual that doesn't wait for things. She makes things happen. Let's not waste more time. So, without further ado, let's get into the show. Isa, dalawa, tatlo. Today's guest is a registered nurse and a U.S. Army major. She was born as a grain under a clear blue sky, but grew up in the land of milk and honey. Everyone, please welcome Margarita Shmaikalova. Thank you, Aaron. How are you doing? I'm doing well today. It's a beautiful Friday evening. Oh, yes. Thank God it's Friday, right? Right. Well, it, it's only Friday for uh, Monday through Friday traditional workers, right? <laughs> We know someone's out there working, twenty. you know, it's it's a 24-7, seven, seven-day-a-week type of gig for some of us. Yeah, you're right, you're right. Very, by the way, thank you for coming on the podcast. I mean, I was excited to have you on. 
Thank you, Erin. It took us a while to connect, but um, I, I love the platform of your podcast, An Immigrant's Life. Um, I think a lot of people were, uh, can relate to it. We're all transplants and we're all trying to make home away from home. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. That's very kind of you. By the way, please tell the Immigrant Nation how they can reach you if you want to promote anything. Go ahead. Sure. Uh, so right now, my most active platform is probably my Instagram account. Um, it's a, it's just my name, Margarita Chmahalava. Um, I do have a lot of impersonators online. So just be cautious uh, when you are connecting with someone that looks uh, like me or has a similar name. Um, but direct messaging on my real Instagram account, uh, I'm pretty good at replying. Uh, but I do stick to um, real messages. If someone's asking, you know, some odd things about pictures of my feet, which happens, that's, that's not going to happen. <laughs> no way. Yeah, all the time. Um, but real questions about whether the immigrant story or questions about military career or um, healthcare profession or gardening or golfing, um, I'm always happy to chat, always happy to share um, any expertise that I can bring as long as it's a legitimate conversation. Definitely. Yeah, you're you're very kind. Yeah, what's going on with the social media copier, like your fake account, the fake accounts there? Yeah, so I'm, I'm glad actually I can uh, speak on that. So, uh, so there are a lot of impersonators and people will impersonate military uh, people, especially, um, or anybody maybe that, you know, wears scrubs. Any image, whether it's healthcare, military, uh, law enforcement that has some kind of um, integrity behind it, people want to capitalize on it. And then what, what they do, these fake impersonators do, they befriend um, other innocent um, social media users and they try to get money out of them. Uh, many times people pretend that the military person is stuck overseas somewhere, uh, they need a plane ticket home, their accounts are frozen, really weird stories that are never true um, and that would never happen. So just use caution online. Mm -hmm. Does it scare you? So, uh, yes, because I, it's not personally like an imminent threat to, to my safety, um, but more so because of the damage it can do to other people. People have sent money. I know this. Mm. I was contacted um, by um, higher up and, to, for it wasn't my fault at all. They just wanted to know, you know, where I stood in this jumbled story. But somebody had sent money to um, somebody that was impersonating me out of a different state, um, and it, it scares me for the, the well-being of others because people are losing finances. People are falling in love with uh, a picture that is not me. It is me, but it's not really me behind the picture doing the talking. Yeah, it's your image they're using. I mean, you're like first round pick, the looks, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's easy to, people will easily fall for it, you know? And it's unfortunate that it, do, it, do, it does happen. Mm -hmm. Let's just go back to your history a little bit. You were sure. born in Ukraine and then immigrated to America. How mm -hmm. old were you when you immigrated? Sure. So um, I was born in Ukraine and we immigrated to the United States in 1991. Mm. So I'm going to date myself and I don't mind. Uh, I'm, I was five when I immigrated. Um, I am 
proud of um, the concept to age gracefully. I think that's um, a privilege not known to many, especially uh, people in war-torn countries, um, the country that I was born in. Uh, aging peacefully and gracefully is a privilege. Um, so I was five when we moved to the United States, and my parents had worked really hard um, with the interviews and the paperwork. Um, we came here on an asylum status to the States. Um, and we were here, we came here for a religious persecution. Um, a few weeks after we left the territory of Ukraine that was still part of Soviet Union, uh, Ukraine earned its independence. So, um, that was in August of 1991 that, uh, Ukraine got it in, in its independence and we came to the States in July. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Was it hard to leave? So for a five-year-old, change is, like, we don't know the frame of reference for, for change. Like, me, yeah. to me, going to bed, you know, having a bedtime or going to a different country, it was still, to me, it was the equivalent stress. It was hard for my parents, for sure. Yeah. Um, and I respect their commitment, and I respect the the work that and the effort that they put in. Um, I mean, they, they had three small kids, um, and they made this journey, um, to this unknown looking for freedom and opportunity. So it was definitely hard and stressful for them. And I saw the stress over the years and the toll it took on them. Um, so it's easier on a child to simulate. I'm not saying it was easy, uh, but I know it was much easier on me than it was on my parents. Definitely, because they're adults. Mm-hmm. You know? Can you elaborate, if you know, about the asylum status for religious persecution? Like, what what did they say to the U.S. government? Sure, sure. So, so growing up in the communist era under the Soviet Union, um, uh, religion was welcome, but it was um, had to be organized religion. Uh, our parents wanted to. And, and their relatives and their communities, they wanted to gather independently, gather in small uh, churches, believe what they wanted to believe, preach what they wanted to preach. Um, but if it wasn't registered through the state, that was considered illegal. Um, so I do remember as a five-year-old, every week we would go uh, before the sun rose, we would go <laughs> to a different house and we would have our private meetings. We would pray, worship. The males would read the scripture. Um, and then we would go home before the sunrise so that we wouldn't be caught. Um, so my parents and their communities and a lot of that generation moved to countries. U.S. was one of them that um, we that we went to um, that were welcoming and were, would allow us to, you know, read the Bible or whatever we wanted to read and pray however we wanted to pray uh, without registering through the state and doing it independently on our on our own time. Definitely. You guys were Christian. Correct. So uh, we were of the Protestant belief. Um, uh, I don't know if they were Baptist, Pentecostal, charismatic. I think we had a, 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 a hodgepodge of belief, different, you know, strains of the Protestant faith in our community. Mm-hmm. From Ukraine, correct me if I'm wrong, you end up in Ohio? Yes, no, you're correct. Thank you for paying attention. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so we first landed in New York. That was the, my first touchdown in, in U.S. territory. And then we, uh, I mean, I think it was a layover. 
uh, went through customs and we ended up in Sydney, Ohio, this tiny little town um, where a little church sponsored us and they got us on our feet for two years. We were there. Um, they got my dad a job uh, mm. and they were super helpful, that little American church. Uh, and it was amazing. And then we were like the, the Oregon Trail all over again. We packed our bags from Ohio and we trucked it to the West Coast because a lot of the family were on the West Coast. O Oregon, Washington has a huge Slavic immigrant population. Really? Why do you think that? You know, I'm trying to think. I, I wish I had an intelligent answer to say, oh, the you know, this is the job market over here. Mm. I, I think we just kind of follow where our families have settled. So mm. at some point, I don't know who chose Oregon or Washington, uh, but they did. It's beautiful out here. I mean, if you can tolerate eight months of rain, you might get four <laughs> months of sun, maybe, maybe two. <laughs> does it snow? It, it does. Okay. Uh, it has been in the last couple of winters. Um, not, not, I, I would say that I'm not the weatherman, but I would say that we, we don't really have cold winters. So maybe we get snow once or twice mm, on okay. average. It's not Montreal weather. It's probably much colder for you guys. Oh yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's very cold. So growing up in Oregon, you know, as an immigrant child, how was your life outside your home? So it's so interesting. And I wonder um, if a lot of other, other immigrants will relate to this. So I do feel like we lived in a time capsule. So we immigrated and we lived in this bubble, in this immigrant bubble. Of mm. We had our own rules. We had our own traditions. And we, the time capsule that I'm talking about, it's like we froze time in 1991 because we thought that if we evolved, we would somehow lose the connection of our heritage. Mm. Meanwhile, you know, our, our community back in Ukraine or, you know, in, in Russia, they were evolving, they were progressing, um, and they were adjusting with times and their, their culture and their and their beliefs. But we immigrants sometimes would clamp down and we're afraid to lose um, that connection. So we live in a time capsule with that, that kind of lags behind the, the progress and the growth. Mm -hmm. I think that's fear of if they move on with their lives in the new country, they will feel that they are being betraying the old country. Mm -hmm. Or maybe Correct. the fear yeah. of, oh, if if I move on, I'm going to forget the old country. It's mm -hmm. not. Mm -hmm. you, you're not going to mm -hmm. forget it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So so there are good and bad things kind of came out of that. The The positive things is, I'm fluent in Russian, more so than Ukrainian, actually. Um, I I do speak Ukrainian and understand it, but Russian, I would say, uh, is just as good as my English. Mm. Um, so that's a positive. Um, it was part of our daily life. We couldn't go outside and play until we read a chapter um, and transcribed it and made sure that our penmanship was to par. Um so that's a positive. I can use that now in my adult life in, in multiple careers. Mm -hmm. uh, but the negative was the ostracism that that I felt um, and many immigrants feel when they are outgrowing the time capsule mm. of their community. Um, we sort of live, I lived in a community where roles were predetermined. There was certain expectations of me as a female um, and I had these untraditional dreams. Um, I was the first in our immigrant 
uh, community and my relatives to graduate college. Um, Congratulations. And other, thank you. And it, I felt like a pioneer. I felt like I was like doing the fight, just trying to advocate for me to go. And it was, it, it was an honor to uh, be the first to get my bachelor's. Um, and then my non-traditional dreams were pretty, pretty obvious pretty quickly because I joined the U.S. military. Hmm. Um, and it was really interesting. My, my father was the only male that was very proud of me. And he said uh-huh. he was supportive. Um, everybody else, uh, and I, my, the sequence of events was pretty, um, pretty rapid for me. So I graduated college, joined the military, got married all within like six months. So a lot of the community would ask, me if my husband had allowed me to join the military. <laughs> um, so, and they would ask me, uh, yeah, and they would ask me things like, oh, you must have met him in the military. I'm like, no, my husband is a civilian and I joined it before I got married and he's supportive of this. And and so it was a lot of confusion mm-hmm. um, in, in my community of these non-traditional goals and dreams. And I did feel ostracized for many years. Um, and now um, but our community has thankfully evolved some. There's mm. a lot of room for growing. Um, and now it's really interesting because um, I almost feel like I I could be a ploy of marketability. And it's it's unfortunate because then it really sets this precedent that we're only valued or accepted or loved when we have enough credentials behind our name or when we've accomplished enough and we look really cool. And then the community wants to say like, oh, she's ours. You see what we produced? And I'm all about evolution and repairing relationships, but I will never be a ploy of marketability. You got you got to love me when I didn't have credentials or if I have 1800 credentials behind my name, that's, mm-hmm. that's my motto is include people. Um, even when they don't fit that traditional, uh, set of rules that the community has for them. Definitely. I mean, you know, don't love me when I'm successful kind of situation, you know? So it's been well-documented that there's a division between immigrant parents and their children growing up in the new country they moved to. Was this also true in your case? I would say yes, but 50% true. (laughs) So I'm absolutely close with my dad. And it's been so beautiful to watch him evolve. Uh, Mm. And the way he's evolved is he's come from, he's come away from the mentality of this workhorse mentality. (laughs) I'm going to work forever. And he's blossomed into um, having the mentality of, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to enjoy this weekend or um, just just enjoy, just just thrive. Um, so definitely, I guess I'm not a statistic there because I've watched my immigrant parents evolve into something that I feel like I've evolved to, um, kind of more of that work-life balance. Hmm. And we don't have to survive. We can just thrive. Uh, but not so much. So I am a statistic with my mother. Um, and I think that's that struggle of I maybe outgrew the expectations that and my mother maybe hadn't yet or hasn't yet. Mm-hmm. How's your relationship with her? 
Well, uh, not not great. Uh, and <laughs> if I'm going to be honest, uh, no. And then again, like I said earlier, I'm all about evolution and repairing relationships. And her and I are not there yet. And it, I think it takes honesty and authenticity to to be able to say that, especially when it's going to be broadcasted and other people are going to watch this. Um, but I think people will only relate more if we're honest and say, no, I'm not there yet. And will we ever reach reach that point where we're in a platonic relationship? I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. And I think it's important to have boundaries. It doesn't matter if it's your parent, um, your child, your what relative insert in, you know, into this conversation, but boundaries are so important for mm. our personal growth, for our um mental clarity and for our emo- emotional well-being. Mm-hmm. Why, what do you think is the difference between your mom and dad? Why was it that your dad allowed to evolve and allowed himself to evolve and your mom just stay there? Ooh, I wish I could ask them this. I wish we could have a conversation with them. Um, my best guess, I mean, they're completely different people. Um, I really, my, my heart almost breaks a little bit for my mother because I know she had such a hard time as a female being mm. oppressed in her community. Um, and that's something my dad didn't have to deal with. He was empowered. He was always the leader in the community. Um, he had, he, he just had a different experience in life. So when struggles came his way, um, I think he was just equipped to like rise above it and say, well, I'm, I'm always going to conquer and, and be okay with But with my mom, I think not having that conquer mentality instilled in you, hmm. I think it's going to affect how you um, see the world and how you build your relationships and maybe how you clamp down on your children. Maybe that's the only thing that she felt that she had power over was to clamp down and keep her children Mm. and we needed room to grow. Definitely. Are you the eldest? So I'm the oldest girl. I have an older brother Mm. and then I, I was the second born and then there's two younger sisters underneath me. So no way. Um, the old, being the older girl definitely gave me, um, a lot of the older child responsibilities Mm -hmm. because of my gender. Oh yeah. Unfortunately, do you think perhaps your mom was looking at you and seeing herself and you not following what she wants for you to do makes her frustrated towards you? You know, I, I don't have kids, so I think it'd be easier for me to answer that if I did have a child and say like, oh, I, I think when you have a child, you see yourself in this child. Um, if I go down that assumption, then I would say yes. Uh, perhaps it was um, difficult to see me be able to um, stand up to the community and choose a life that I wanted. And that was not something that she had. And Mm. maybe, maybe that's part of a struggle, you know, a personal struggle for her. And again, I'm I'm speaking out of assumption. Um, Mm. It was something that it would be amazing to hear from her perspective. Like how, how is it? to, you know, to grow up in an oppressed society, to make a sacrifice for your family and then watch your children benefit. Like, is it pride 
or is it hurt and regret because you didn't have the opportunity? That's an amazing question to ask our parents. Mm-hmm. By the way, to for that question, I do have kids, and I do mm-hmm. not reflect myself to my kids. Mm-hmm. You know, like I always tell them, you do whatever you want to do. I'm going to be here. Mom and I will be here to help you get that. Whatever that is. You could, you want to be the best juggler in the world? Go get it. But that's, and I, I love that, but that's considered unconditional love. Mm. I feel like I grew up with very conditional love. <laughs> like I had to earn certain things. So mm. there's a difference. And I think, um, and I think it's hard to be, to give unconditional love as a parent, as anybody, as a human, if you have never felt unconditional love. So maybe going back to my mother, uh, she grew up in a big family. She grew up oppressed by uh, religious rules, uh, by the government. So maybe she didn't know unconditional love and maybe she didn't know how to put, pass that forward. Yeah, that remind me of this. I don't know where I saw it, most likely Instagram. is It says that someone can only love as much as much as they love themselves. Like mm-hmm. they cannot go further than that because that's all they know. They cannot be like, oh, I can love more here because, but they can't know because they don't know. Mm-hmm. But you, but as an adult, don't you think you should put it yourself that, oh, you know what? Something needs to change. You know what I mean? Sure. And I, I, I mean, that's, that's our personal evolution and personal growth. And we can only grow if we want to. Um, it's it's kind of like when uh, we're talking about an addict. People can only change if they realize they have a problem and they realize, you know, that that's not where they want to stay. But if we're just stuck in the same mentality, in the same, the way things are, um, and if we don't, um, and it's painful to say, admit that, hey, I've been wrong or, hey, my previous beliefs didn't really line up with with what I want to be in, in a couple of years. It's really uh, humbling to come to that realization. And I even I have a personal hard time to admit when I'm wrong uh, <laughs> because there's a sense of pride in us. Like we always want to be right. We always want to uh, have this uh, face that we're putting on that we're self-assured and we're, um, we have all this life experience and we don't make mistakes. And it's so hard to admit, to say like, wow, I should have apologized. I shouldn't have said that, or, um, I was wrong. It's so hard, even for me. And I, and I try to be mindful, but it's hard. We should ask the husband. He's not here. Don't ask him. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I read a story about you that I want to hear from you. You grew up hiding books. Yes. Oh, uh, it just, I love writing. I love stories. So mm. um, when I was uh, in public schools, we were, uh, we were able to check out books, bring them home. Mm-hmm. So I would always um, have to hide the books I brought home because <laughs> we were only allowed to read things that were religious, uh, re- related to religion or religious or spirituality, um, things that were especially um, like th- that included like fantasy, fantasy as in um, like um, the supernatural or magic. 
uh, that was considered uh, demonic for, for us. And it would uh, instill bad thoughts, bad ideas. Mm-hmm. So uh, I loved all genres of books. So I would hide the books. Like I had this like binder that I could zip up. Um, so I would hide it deep in there, zip it up. Um, and then I would, when I was reading it, I'd have my binder open. And then if my mom would approach, I would hide it like underneath, you know, other papers and pretend I was doing my homework because I didn't want her to ask me what I was reading. I was a terrible liar. Um, and she knew enough English to open a book. And like, if she, she knew enough English, she could find a word that maybe if it had like wizard in it, I'll get in trouble. Really? Did you ever get caught? Uh, not with reading books, no, no. No? I got caught doing other things, but not with reading books. <laughs> That's why I grew up with all these ideas and I became a major in the U.S. Army. It's because of the wizard books that I read. <laughs> the creativity, you know? <laughs> yeah. How much you get hit by your mom or your dad? Oh, so... That's an interesting topic. So I will tread lightly on that. Um, so again, uh, I'm not going to talk about discipline, but I will talk about abuse. Mm-hmm. So um, I think there's, um, we definitely got disciplined. We got spanked all the time and sometimes I definitely deserved it. Uh, but then <laughs> but then there were times that um, it definitely bordered abuse. It was definitely mm-hmm. abuse. Um, anytime that... Um, you have to cover up marks from coat hangers or belts. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to go to school. And, and anytime that happened, we weren't allowed to ch- uh, change. We as in um, my siblings and I, if we had like physical education, we had to change into our PE uniform, our, our fitness uniform at school. We just pretended that we didn't bring the uh uniform so that we wouldn't have to change and nobody would see our welts. Mm. So when it came to that, again, I think that that needs to be clear that that's, that's crossing a, a, a line from discipline to abuse. Um, and that's not right. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't hit my kids, obviously, but the, I got hit a lot. Mm-hmm. Like you said, there were times that was my fault, you know? But then again, somebody told me that you were a kid. You were being a kid. Right. It, but it goes back to the culture, right? That's what their norm was, that you beat out these demons, you beat out the bad behavior. Um, and, and you know, every time you saw that twitch or whatever it was, you flinched, you knew there was something wrong. Um, but you're right that... Uh, as a parent, um, as, as we're talking about the safety and well-being of children, hmm. um, you really need to reconsider um, your discipline preferences. And again, I'm not a parent, so I'm going to back out of this, but I will hmm. focus on the safety. I will always advocate for um, child welfare. Um, hmm. I've had, I've done many uncomfortable phone calls when it comes to um, abuse um, and it's abuse of, and I'm talking about children, but also adults can get abused and elderly. So Definitely, uh, the safety and welfare is my priority in in all demographics. Definitely. Speaking of abuse, I know you're an advocate for sexual harassment in the military. Want to talk about that? Sure. Um, uh, so I guess I'll start off with saying that you know we it's not just a military problem. The military 
is a product of society and um, the U.S. culture, probably world culture, um, is very hypersexualized. Um, mm. Everything from the lyrics that that are produced by um, our pop artists um, to 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 name it. Um, you know, when we're marketing perfume, it's very hypersexualized. Um, so if if that's our norm in society, and then we put on the uniform and we expect service members to know to turn it off, turn that off and put on their professionalism, that takes a lot of re-education um, mm-hmm. and a lot of cultural assimilation of this is the professional standard in the military. Um, so it is my passion, though. It is. Um, I I remember my first, uh, I think I was, oh gosh, I was in elementary school, maybe fourth grade. And that was my first time that I felt objectified and I felt terrified for my life. Um, and it's, it's a story that I actually shared in my future memoir, but from, I think that's my first memory of being objectified and fearing uh, being sexually attacked when I was in fourth grade. And it's followed me through my entire life, um, as, whether I'm in my civilian career or in the military career. And it's just become a passion of mine just to re, re-educate people and bring that um, cultural change to the military, at least. At least I can con- help contribute to that cultural change. I can't really change our society mm. um, to see people in a professional way, to interact with people and be mindful of our behavior, be mindful uh, of, our, of the words that we use, uh, of the jokes that we say. Um, just to keep it professional and keep it comfortable. Yeah. Like one of the main thing was in our culture, Filipino culture, we're very macho as most of in the world. Cat calling is a thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to lie. When I was younger, I used to do it because sure. I'm stupid. You know, I no, I didn't have anyone to like, hey, educate me about like, by the way, don't do that. It's, you know, but then eventually as I evolved, I said, yeah, don't do that, dude. That's not cool. um, Well, I was going to say if you have daughters, but I'm also going to catch myself and say that sexual harassment and sexual assault doesn't discriminate for gender. But I do know that um, a lot of times um, parents or dads say like, well, I have a daughter, I have to be extra careful because uh, statistically, women have been sexually harassed and assaulted more in our society, but it doesn't discriminate. There's no gender discrimination. It does happen to males, and males are less likely to come forward uh, because of this um, expectation that either they got lucky um, or uh, they just they don't want to ruin their macho persona, and that's unfortunate. Um, every victim des- deserves to be believed. Every victim deserves their journey of healing, um, deserves resources, whether they're male or female. Hmm. What do you mean about men being victim of harassment? Like w- men to men or women harassing men? Uh, either way. So uh, it could be, um, it, it could be. So for example, some things that we would, if I was doing a class in the military, um, or maybe a class anywhere, really, and sexual harassment jokes, um, just even anything that takes away from that professional environment or 
or anything that takes away from a person's comfort level. For example, um, let's say um, let's say that uh, somebody is dared to do something, um, and the male it's a male on male uh, dare uh, of I don't know maybe kicking a ball somewhere, and the male says, you know what, I don't I don't think so. I I, I don't want to do it. And the other male says, oh, you don't have the balls to do it. That could be in itself sexual harassment. Anytime that uh, somebody feels demeaned or there's a sexual connotation, that alone can be sexual harassment. So it could be between male, males and males, um, or it could be cat call, a female cat calling a male. And, you know, you, someone's mowing along their shirt off, girl drives by, rolls down her window and whistles. That's sexual harassment. Um, it's it's not always welcome, right? So, sometimes he, maybe the guy didn't mind it, um, but it's unnecessary. Hey, listen, if somebody can't call me, I'll be like, yo, what's up? <laughs> but no, yeah, I mean, I guess so. But how do you know when, you know, let's say you're friends, right? And you're joking around or like uh, co-workers and you're joking around and, you know, you get loose and you say something maybe you know, maybe demeaning, I guess, or sexually, how would you know that you said something that is demeaning? Because, you you know, you're being loose and you're joking around. So it's perception-based, right? So know your audience. So if you're um, in, in the tiny group of people and you know these people and you, you, you've, you've grown up with them, and if that's your circle of friends, no one else is going to eavesdrop and, and hear the conversation, that's, that's, that's your... Call. that's that's on you and but just my 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 thing is always to know your audience hmm. um and especially in a work environment better better err on the side of caution and especially in the military we're held to a higher standard hmm. um just just don't do it yeah definitely but always know your audience yeah that's the that's the main thing and you know if you if you offended someone you could always like hey by the way i'm sorry i didn't you know absolutely yeah and those in the spot corrections that's you know that's 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 what we live for um we're like again we're a product of our society there are times that i've said something and i realized oh my goodness that could have been perceived as inappropriate <laughs> but we're so quick to repeat uh, innuendos um and then before we're done saying things and again i've never done it in the military but maybe like with a group of friends and I realized, oh, this isn't everybody that I 100% know. Um, just have to be mindful. Were you a nurse first before you became a U.S. Army major? Uh, like by a week, yes. Hmm. <laughs> so uh, I graduated uh, nursing, got my bachelor's. Um, then I got my U.S. citizenship. It was like, it was like the, such a busy two-week period. Graduated college, got my U.S. citizenship, got commissioned into the military, and then got married later. And then a couple, uh, four months later, got married. It was it was a busy year. I don't know how I did it that year. Wait, did you plan that? What's going on? No, no, my no, I did not plan it that way. Um, I was just focused on graduating nursing school, and then a rec uh, I talked to a recruiter and. They were a little bit pushy with, you know, you need to get your citizenship, though. So as soon as I got those things, I got commissioned right away. And I accidentally by then had fallen in love and 
my husband could not wait to get married. So we did. I wanted to wait another year, but mm. he was excited to get married. Lock up that girl, man. Lock up that girl. I, that's what he says. So I'm like, <laughs> well. So I don't know if uh, if I'm right about this assumption, but if you're not a citizen, can you apply to be to be in the military and then you will get the citizenship? So uh, for if you're going to commission as an officer, which I did, you have to be a U.S. citizen. Mm. You essentially renounce um, your citizenship to all other countries. You're As an officer, you have to be a U.S. citizen only. Mm. Uh, if you're enlisted, there are opportunities to join um, as a non-citizen, and then you can get your citizenship that way. Um, I haven't worked with anyone personally, so I can't speak too much on that. I'm more well-versed in the route of getting your citizenship and then being commissioned as an officer. Hmm. I saw you flying on the plane, like being a nurse and whatnot. What's the deal with that? <laughs> uh, I'm a flight nurse. Uh, so okay. a couple months, I was going to say a couple months ago, but time flies, man. Uh, March and we're in August now, so maybe that's, Five months ago, I joined a, a, a flight crew um, here locally out of Oregon. Um, so they do critical care transport and they fly internationally. So it's a Learjet. Um, so they we fly high altitudes. We go fast uh, and we, we can cover long distances. So it's not seen calls. It's not um, like some companies that they, you know, land their helicopter and then airlift to the nearest hospital. It's not that we do um, transfers maybe between hospitals, either to a higher level of care or to rehab centers closer to home. Um, you know, an example would be maybe someone broke a hip on vacation and they mm. can't fly commercial. So they need uh, a, a, a critical care transport team to make sure that they fly home and they're laying down and they potentially can have the medical treatment that they need. Uh, in route, if if necessary. But it costs a lot of money, right? I'm sure. And <laughs> the beauty of being a nurse, I don't get to deal with insurance or bills. Um, I just get to do my job and I get to do it well. But I do know it does cost money to fly. Definitely. I also saw that you won a award for Award of Excellence for American Health Council being a registered nurse? Yes, uh, it's been a few years. Uh, I, w I was nominated for something. Hmm. I'd have to pull it up. I was, uh, and now I sound very arrogant. I've won so many awards. Which one was that? <laughs> <laughs> and just, so just for nursing, right? <laughs> you it, you won other more for uh, the army. I do have a lot. Uh, I'm very proud of my military accomplishments for sure. Where's this drive coming from? You know, that's a great question. I think uh, I, I, if we lined up 10 immigrants in the same seat that I'm sitting in, I think we'd have a similar answer. Um, mm -hmm. I think we, especially the the that first generation, the ones who remember how it was in the other part of the world, we have this drive to, um, we have this opportunity. We, we've been gifted this opportunity um, and it's almost like, wow, I, I can do anything. And you just, you want to do this and you want to do that. Uh, and then there's also 
um, earlier in my career, I had this fear of failure and I just wanted to prove that I was um, worthy and I could accomplish it. So it was a combination of feeling privileged and honored and excited um, about the gift of opportunity, but also this almost derailed need to prove that I belong here and I'm going to do well and I'm going to prove that I'm going to succeed. So it's a combination of healthy drive and almost this like derailed need to to prove that I I belong here and I'm worthy. Mm -hmm. As long as you find the balance. That's what matters. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You, you know, because it's either you're crazy or oh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to be crazy to, you know, be in military, graduate college, you know, mm -hmm. get married later. You know what I mean? That's a lot of work. It, it is. It is. Uh, but, you know, it's the beauty of it is I'm sitting here today and a, a lot of like it's been the last 14 years. So it's not something that's. I just accomplished last night. It's mm. it's been a span of 14 years of growth and accomplishment and um you know steering my career into hey, I really love aviation um or or hey, my passion is advocating for topics of sexual harassment, and sexual mm. assault. Um so it's it's been an incredible journey. Sometimes it's been exhausting. Um I did take a a break from the military actually. Uh mm. And then I've come back the last couple of years with more passion and more renewed um, sense of purpose. Why did you take a break? Well, um, there was actually two main reasons. One was, um, ironically, um, I didn't feel like there was a, a good uh, system in place for me to be heard for some issues that I was having with sexual harassment. Hmm. Um, and it was incredible to take a break, do some personal growth and come back with the, with, and then also as I came back, I um, got qualified in the military to be an advocate for, for sexual harassment, sexual assault. So that was one reason. Another reason was, um, Sometimes it's really hard to progress um, with with paperwork pushing in the military. And there was one component um, that I just kept getting rejected. I had been a critical care nurse, uh, an intensive care nurse for years. And there was I was having a hard time for the military to recognize that specialty. They just saw me as a, as a regular nurse, not a critical care nurse, not an ICU nurse. And I just didn't want to be seen as a regu regular nurse. There's nothing wrong with that. But I had been in the specialty for years and I felt like I deserved that recognition. Um, so I took a break for those two main reasons. A, I wanted to be seen for what I was actually doing in my civilian practice. And B, um, I was just, I just needed a mental break. Um, there was a couple of things that had happened, um, sexually harassing in nature um, that weren't addressed. So were you? Correct. Mm, sorry to hear that. Thank you. I appreciate the the empathy, but it, but um, it it was definitely a growing experience. And um, in retrospect, I think it it really helped me see that perspective uh, as an advocate now. Where I tell people, I believe you. Um, deep down, there's a little voice that says, "Because I know." Mm. Um, 
Yeah, unfortunately, you know. I know. Hmm. Yeah, I guess you need that. Why did you enlist, by the way? So um, I was commissioned. En- enlisted is just a different uh, different term. That means um, it's for the enlisted personnel, which I love our enlisted um, service members. They're incredible. Um, but the correct word for me is commissioned. Commissioned, so why okay, sorry. Commissioned. Um, I feel like you're asking such great questions. It's just like leading the conversation. So back to what we said about feeling ostracized by my community, with my non-traditional goals. Um, I felt felt like I had lost um, a community. And I, I wanted that community. I mm. wanted a community. Uh, and then the military kind of was, you know, there was a recruiter. There was this, this idea that I could become part of this community that would make me stronger and that would make me, um, you know, help me cultivate skills that I wouldn't be able to have in a civilian life. So that was very appealing. I wanted a community and I wanted to be better. You know, that derailed, like, teach me to be better. Show me how I can improve. Um, so, so that was the main drive um, behind that. Mm. What's your opinion on people that says America is the worst country because of blah, blah, blah? Anybody will can say any country is the best or the worst. Um, I obviously I'm biased. I sort of chose this country uh, while my parents did, and then I chose to get my citizenship here. Um, so I, I, to them who who do say that, I'm going to say I'm really sorry if you, if you if you've had a bad experience, but it's it's going to be a universal human experience. There's not going to be you can't escape evil in any country. There's going to be bad things that happen in, mm. in every country. Um, so to that person, whatever happened to them to form that opinion, I'm, re- I'm really sorry. Um, and I hope that we, as the people of the U.S. that strive to do good things, I hope we can prove to them that there are good humans in, in the U.S. Um, and, and, it's, and I hope that that person finds a good community. If it's not in, in the U.S., like find your people, like wherever it is, uh, find acceptance, find love. Um, I love the U.S. <laughs> I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're serving them, right? You know, serving right, you right, the right, military. Right. Is there a lot of immigrants that are uh, enlisted? You or know, I commissioned? was a, sure uh, in the military. I've been trying to look up some numbers for that. Um, so, and I, there are statistics um, uh, online about how much, how many immigrants have served. And it's just a beautiful thing. There, and I've been looking into history, like women's history. And there's been uh, immigrant, women immigrants that have served, you know, in many, um, many wars back. So I don't have the exact number off the top of my head, but hmm. it's an, it's a fascinating fascinating demographic and I'm definitely trying to find good numbers for that. Hmm. Do you guys get sent to like, I don't know, like whatever country? So um, I'm in the army reserves. So I'm kind of backfilled to the active duty and the beauty about being in the reserves, you can be um, as uh, involved with your career as you want to. So right now I'm in a phase where I'm kind of very go get it. I'm a go, I'm a go getter. Um, in the military. So I do want to be activated more. 
Um, so just recently, uh, less than a year ago, I did come back from a mission down in Central America, which, so I was deployed for 10 months and I, um, it was a very good deployment. It was non-combat um, and I enjoyed the missions that we did. Um, and then since I've come back, I've joined uh, a really good unit here nearby, near to my home. And uh, I'm going to be doing some really cool things with them in the next year for sure. That's awesome. I'm sure the husband missed you so much. That must a long time. The 10 months was a long time. And it was during uh, travel restriction, restriction. So COVID was still, um, you know, exists in existence. And there was a lot of travel bans. So we didn't get to see each other at all. I didn't get to take leave at all. Um, so the 10 months was um, hard for both of us. But at the same time, it was probably an an incredible um, moment in our marriage because we've been married. Um, now we've been married 14 years at that point, it was like 12, 13 years. And um, all I've ever known in my young adulthood is to have this partner in life mm. always around. And you kind of get sub submerged or like emerged into their identity. And for 10 months, I actually had my own identity and my husband's mm. very, um, how the word is not giving, but he he gives me space. He he mm. he's not territorial. He's not into gender roles, so I don't feel oppressed at all in my marriage. However, it's just this natural partnership, you know, from basic things to like what you want to do with with the weekend. But to be on your own for ten months and to have your own identity was so incredible, mm. and I hadn't experienced that in twelve, thirteen years. Yeah, yeah, and also you know. Missing each other makes it your heart ponder, you know. Absolutely. So you, when you see him and he sees you, like yo, <laughs> it was incredible. I feel like we started, you know, we started fresh again. It was such a wonderful experience. But I do want to shatter some stereotypes. Some people have these like visions of when you get reunited after deployment, you run and you embrace. Maybe that's like. I don't know, 90% true, maybe 50% true. I don't know. But for us, I, maybe we just came out of the COVID area era too. Like we just looked at each other and we shook hands. We didn't know what to do with each other. <laughs> we're just like, we're, oh, how, 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 good, to, good to see you. And it was just, and it was just raw and it was real. And then uh, we drove and like, like he picked me up and we drove home and then he's like, do you want to get a drink? I was like, I need a drink. And it was just, it was like 10 months. We hadn't seen each other and we like on deployment, you don't touch people and COVID, you don't touch people. Mm. I just didn't know how to touch a person. That's so funny, man. Oh yeah. I see you sometimes doing this river, like you're finding stuff in the river. What's up with this? So we clean the river. So if I mean, our communities are only as healthy downstream if we're keeping things clean upstream. Uh, so we started this many years ago, like over a decade ago. Uh, there's a river close to us, um, you know, and it feeds into a bigger river that feeds into a bigger river that goes into the ocean. And we just clean a certain part of this river. We dive down, we do free diving, we'll collect cans and trash, but we also find a lot of cool stuff, a lot of treasure. Um, and that's kind of how we market it to our friends. Like come out, look for sunglasses or lost phones. Let's try to return the lost phones. Uh, but at the same time, there's cans down there. So pick them up and let's keep the river clean. Um, and then recently we're actually joined 
we just became river ambassadors with a company um, that gets grants to actually do the river cleaning and stock uh, life jackets at, at the um, start points of these uh, of the river. So it's a kind of a fun way to contribute to the community. Who thought of this? Uh, my, my, my husband actually initiated it. So he's been river rafting since he was in high school. Um, he's always been outdoorsy and he started, you know, diving just for treasure. And then he started realizing, oh my gosh, the treasure is always next to the trash or, and why am I just picking up the treasure? If I can just also collect the cans while I'm down here, you know, snorkeling. So he started doing that. And then we kind of, uh, it became a thing. He was on the news a couple of times. So it's been kind of fun. And now we are able to sometimes quantify the trash with either the amount of cans that we return for money or just, you know, just pictures of the bags of trash. So it's kind of fun to quantify. Have you ever seen a gun? No gun. Um, there was a laptop laptop once in the river. Who brings a laptop? I think it was thrown off a bridge. Oh. Uh, so no gun. So GoPros, sunglasses, cell phones, spears, like fishing spears, um, uh, an entire jug of milk. I don't know who brings the milk. Like, I don't know. It's just bizarre things. Really how fun. do you, how do you, because I see you returning the phone to people. How do you figure it out? Yeah. So that's a good question. I've been meaning to post because other people have asked me this. So there's a couple ways. So a lot of the, a lot of the phones are locked. Like the ones that aren't locked, super easy to return. So if we can dry them up, uh, charge them. And if they turn on, if they're unlocked, it's easy. We just, you know, you know, call somebody and be like, mm. whose phone is this? How do we return them? <laughs> but if they're locked, then I feel like we're the FBI. So a lot of the locked phones actually still, you can access their emergency contacts. Um, so if you, if your emergency contact um, is like your mom or your spouse, we can still call them even if this phone is locked. Um, other times, we can uh, read the messages. So sometimes there's like an Instagram, like Aaron commented on your Instagram. And I'm like, oh, let me text Aaron. Hey, Aaron, do you know any friends that lost a phone? And then you're like, yeah, my, my, you know, that was my friend. And I heard he lost his phone. So that we just kind of do some research that way. So we've used social media. Like when, when it's popped up on the screen, we've emailed someone, like their Gmail popped up. I was like, let me just email her. Uh, so that worked. Um, those are the, the, oh, sometimes people have called their own phone and we, we answer it and we're like, hey, who, who are you? We, we have this phone. <laughs> who are you? What, okay, if the phone is not working anymore, right, where do you bring the trash? Where, where do we bring the, this we phone. usually take it to the carrier. So something like Verizon or AT&T or whatever. Don't give it to them. They're going to make money off of it. What, I, I don't know. Who do, who do we give it to, Aaron? <laughs> well, I know in my area we have like trash that like electronic trash. You can throw it there. I don't know if I guess you guys don't have it there. Uh, maybe the I don't know. I, maybe my husband knows about that electronic trash. I don't know. I, I'll ask him about. <laughs> That's like yeah, but yeah, again, you guys are saints, man. I'm like yo, yo I'm keeping my phone. You lost <laughs> your phone. I'm keeping it. But what are we going to do with it? We can't access it. A lot of times people turn it off um, or they, they call their carrier and then it, it like is turned off. So there's really nothing that 
we we have no use for it. There are ways. <laughs> there are ways. Maybe in Canada, I don't know. <laughs> no, no, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure I'll probably. I've, I, people have lost phone, and I'm like, I'll, I return it to them. You know, like it's all. Also, it's nice to return stuff. You know. Yes, it's it's fun. It's I I was watched something on the news where they did a study where people who do good deeds, like they were. They and it was all it was very biased because then you'd rank like how it made you feel. But the 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 result of the study is like people who do good things feel better. I'm like, well, that's a no-brainer. You didn't yeah. have to do a study. We all know that if you do good deeds, it makes you feel better. But it also inspires other people to do good deeds as well. So if you return somebody's phone, a lot of times what, what people tell us is like, we'll pass it forward. We're like, yeah, that's exactly what you should do. Like pass on a good deed forward. Yeah. I love that. Let's uh, change the topic a little bit. Let's talk about your memoir. What made you think of writing a memoir and what's, what are you writing in the memoir? Sure. Um, well, thank you for asking. Uh, so I started putting stories together similar to what you're doing, um, just stories together a decade ago. And it was more therapeutic for me just to get all the um events that happened in my childhood on paper. And I love writing. I, I see patterns in words. I love words. Um, and I would start off with just writing down stories, like when I would hide my books. Um, and I would try to really just um, encapsulate those feelings and the smells and the emotions of that moment, you know, as I hear the footsteps coming in and I'm hiding my book <laughs> and I'm losing my place in the book. Um, so I started that 10 years ago and I just kept those stories. And then <clears throat> on deployment, when I was in Central America, um, I was feeling homesick. Um, I, I had some downtime. So I started to really read. That's when I really started to put my memoir together. And I got that vision of how my memoir should come together. Um, and then it just continued to evolve because when um, in February of this year, when Russia invaded Ukraine, and I started hearing stories about, you know, immigrants being displaced, and it just came brought back all those memories of being a fresh immigrant. And I just started to think about, is this generation really equipped and ready to embrace transplants? We, we talk about inclusivity, we talk about accepting people, but can we actually do that? Um, and then I started remembering all the stories growing up where I felt like I didn't fit in. And you, I mean, you would look at me now and you're like, how did you not fit in? You look like an American, you sound like an American. But uh, so I, I grew up in this bubble. So a lot of times I was being dressed in a very traditional way that Americans didn't dress. Um, and I was afraid to speak because I was not really allowed to show emotion at home or really speak my mind at home. So I was this timid um, kid who didn't dress like everybody else. And for a while during my young school years, I was learning English. So I didn't quite speak English well either. So I was thinking about all the times that boys would tell me, trip me in, in school and say, you need to go back to your country or you, or girls would say like, you need to dress more American. And I started thinking about what about these immigrants that are coming and we're, we're being proud of, of to say like, oh, we accepted this many refugees, 
But are these refugees and are these immigrants, are they being welcomed in our society? Or are they just brownie points to make us feel good that we're inviting other people? But are we actually accepting them and our them as in the immigrants and the refugees in our communities? So that's kind of how my memoir has evolved um, to point out the discrepancies of how the society I grew up in, they, we didn't, I wasn't welcomed. Uh, kids didn't know what to do with me. I didn't sound like them. I didn't dress like them. I didn't behave like them. So what about this next influx of immigrants? Are we, is society prepared to make them feel included or are we going to put them through the same hardships that some of us went through as immigrants? It's going to be the same hardships. You think so? Yeah, unfortunately. Because, you know, the thing with that is, like you said, it's brownie points to bring them, right? Like a few years ago when the Syrian war happened recently, recently they brought in, I think, 20,000 Syrians. And mm-hmm. a lot, a lot of Canadians was mad at that because, oh, why are you bringing these people? You know, we're gonna, you guys going to give them money instead of spending it on Canadians and whatnot. And do you think they take care of it? No, not really. You know, they're just like, hey, this is the place you stay there and figure it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's why my my biggest message is to practice inclusivity. Um, some of us uh, learn pretty quickly, myself, um, to pretend I'm not an immigrant. And then that, I was denying myself who I was. Um, and even, even amongst the immigrants. So I remember there's another story. I remember a little girl asking me, in my ESL class, in my English second language class, she looked at me and she said, are you Russian or Ukrainian? <laughs> and to me, I had grown up. So again, I was born in Ukraine. My mom's Ukrainian, but my dad's Russian. So I had been raised with both cultures. And to me, sometimes I didn't know the difference because mm. uh, we would mix the language. We would like, I didn't really you know, know the difference growing up sometimes. And that little, when that little girl asked me, I said, oh, I'm Russian. And she was so angry. She said, well, I can't talk to you. I'm (laughs) Ukrainian. And in that moment, I realized, I was like, well, and then I went home and told my mom the story. She's like, well, you are Ukrainian. You have to go back and tell her. I was like, I can't do that. She already told her I'm Russian. I can't take it back. (laughs) So, but from that moment, I realized I have to wait till the other person tells me what they're comfortable with. So then if anybody else asks me, I'm like, well, what are you? So if they were Ukrainian, I'd be like, okay, I, I can tell you I'm Ukrainian. If they're Russian, I'd be like, okay, well, I'll play that angle. And then we deny ourselves like who we really are. And the mm. same thing in the uh, American community. Um, sometimes I I didn't tell people I was an immigrant, but my name would give it away. Like my, or something would give it away. But I, if I could play the game that I was just American, I would fit in. And sometimes I'd play the game that I was just Ukrainian and I would fit in, or I was just Russian and I would fit in. And then you just lose this battle of you're never really Russian enough or Ukrainian enough or American enough. You're always trying to make other people feel comfortable about who you are. Mm-hmm. That's the curse and the gift of being an immigrant. Mm-hmm. You know, you're never, you're not Ukrainian enough. You're not Russian enough. You're not American enough. Well, mm-hmm. what the hell are you then? Right, right. You know, I call it um, the the Bob Marley complex. 
because Bob Marley was half black, half white, and he used to hang out with the whites. Of course, they'll say, no, you're black. Go over to the black people. He goes to the black people like, no, 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 you're white. Go over there. Well, that's why he became like, okay, no, dude, we need to be together. Yeah. So when are we expecting this um, memoir to be published? So fun fact about getting published in the military. So first, I need to have, um, there's a department in uh, kind of a, a military department that has to screen my book and give me the thumbs up and give me a piece of paper that says you can publish this uh you're not disclosing any secrets um so once i get that letter of approval which can take three to six months then i can get published however i'm not even quite there yet um i still have about um i'd say eight more stories that i need to write down um, and that'll give me, so right now I'm at 55,000 words. I have a lot of things to say in this memoir. Um, and so the eight more stories will probably give me another five to 8,000 more words. So I'll just be pushing like 60,000 words. Um, so once I'm there, I'll submit it to, to, for the military to approve and say, Hey, you're good. You're, this is your story. This isn't, this isn't our views and you're not violating anything. And then I want to get uh, uh, published, but I also, I don't want to self-publish. I definitely want to go the route where I have an agent and I want to be uh, marketed. So that'll definitely be another um, work, more work where I have to market myself to an agent and say, hey, um, I, I should get published and this is why. Why do you think, why do you don't want to do self-publishing? I think I could reach a, a bigger demographic uh, if I have an agent to to push my work. Yeah, fair enough. Also, with all due respect to people that self-publish, people usually do not give credit to the book if it's self-published. And like, oh, it's just a dude, you know, he didn't go through the proper channel, mm -hmm. I guess, you know. You know what I mean? Sure, I, I hear what you're saying. So it... it there is an extra layer of work that comes with finding an agent. Uh, Self-publishing uh, would definitely be a quicker route. Uh, mm. And I don't want to, you know, talk bad about any self-publishing. Mm. I haven't done either. So I'm not even a published author. So mm. kudos to the self-publishers. But I definitely, I'm going to, if I can, I'm going to put in that extra effort and find an agent. Um, I definitely feel like there's a huge demographic um, of transplants of immigrants who... And, and just not even if you're a transport immigrant, just listen to the things that society has put us through and, and help us change that culture um, into more of an inclusive culture. That's the whole point of this of my story. Definitely, definitely. I think we're there, but let's close out with one question, if, if you don't mind. Sure. What's the most important thing to you? Hmm. Um. I hear my husband's voice in my head and I'm trying so hard to fight it and to try to say something else. But I'm going to say the thing that he told me when we were dating, because I asked this to him. I said, hey, what's the most important thing to you? And he said to be happy. And I corrected him. And I, if you listen to my other podcast, you probably heard me say this story. And I corrected him. I said, no, you're wrong. The most important thing is to be successful and he didn't argue with me. Um, and many years later, like as I sit here today, I will echo that answer. And I say the most important thing is, is to be happy. And sometimes our journey to happiness 
is a long one and it's full of heartbreak uh, because it might consist of being ostracized from a community, but it's the ostracism is going to be temporary. Mm. When you find your community that accepts you and values you, and when you find the careers and the hobbies and the, the friends and the people that love you for who you are and don't care about your credentials or your degrees or where you live or you know what you drive, when you find that community and you find that full acceptance, you realize that's when you're happy. And I realize I sleep better at night when I'm content and when I'm happy. I don't I don't wake up counting my awards. I don't wake up, you know, gloating and uh, degrees on my walls. I wake up just happy and content that I'm alive and that I have a beautiful garden um, and that I'm healthy. So happiness, I think, is the most important thing to me. Wise word from a wise woman. Again, Margarita, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, Aaron. Hopefully you have a good uh, rest of your evening. You too. Bye. Take care. Bye. Thank you again, Margarita, for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, listeners, for listening. This is Aaron Deliosa for An Immigrant's Life. I'll see you guys later.